Okay, welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. Had our usual opening music there, I got to write in uh, something a little extra there. That was The Great Decline by Johnny Hickman, relative uh, to our subject today. I'm Robert Larson. This is our May 23rd, 2008 edition of the show. It's 5.06 on the clock. Before we get going, I'll remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. I'll also let you know that if you want to give me some feedback on the show, you can reach me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's MySpace.com slash out the rabbit hole. How is it that more people in the world are starving than ever before, while at the same time there are more obese people than ever before? The answer to this, as well as the startling answers to several other usually unasked questions, are found in the new book Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. This work will leave you shocked, outraged, educated, and enlightened, but ultimately it will leave you hopeful and ready to act. It is a shocking expose of all the political machinations, social upheavals, and murderous horrors involved in the process of how and what food gets from the field to your table. Our special guest today is the author of Stuffed and Starved, Raj Patel. Raj, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Robert. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks for uh, you know writing the book. It's been uh, quite an eye opener to read. Well, it, and it was, it was quite an eye opener to write as well. I didn't know half the things that I found out uh, while while doing the research for it. Uh, yes, I, I just uh, th- there's so much I, I want to talk to you about, and uh, I'm, we'll actually only be able to cover some of it here today in in the whole hour that we have. But uh, let, let's get right into it. Let's first talk about uh, you know a little bit about your background and the process that led you to writing the book. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I I was born in uh, in Britain of, uh, from uh, of immigrant parents, but. Um, uh, became really interested in, in the ideas of a sort of counter-globalization or sort of the global justice movement, you know, just as, as a teenager and, and getting active in, uh, you know, sort of political uh, campaigns in Britain. Um, and uh, actually, I, I was one of the many thousands of organizers who was involved in putting together the World Trade Organization protests in 1999 in Seattle. Um, and as, uh, w- w- one of the most inspirational movements that I saw there was uh, a group called Via Campesina, which by some measures has 150 million members um, in countries all over the world. And, and they were, were presenting a, a kind of alternative globalization around food um, and, and around agriculture and around rural livelihoods. Uh, and, and they kind of inspired me in various ways to sort of get involved in a deeper way in, in thinking about those sorts of issues. Um, and I ended up working at Food First, uh, a, a think tank in Oakland, California, um, and then ended up writing writing the book based on those experiences and, and on and sort of further interviews with Via Campesina and other really exciting movements around the world that have been challenging the way our food gets to us. And you currently are a, a visiting scholar at uh, the UC Berkeley Center for African Studies? That's right. And I'm also a, a, a research scholar at uh, the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. Okay, and uh, it says on your book jacket that uh, uh, you've... Uh, been tear gassed on four continents protesting the WTA, WTO and the World Bank and the UN, but you also actually previously worked for them? Well, yeah, I, I, as a graduate student, I worked for the, the World Bank on a very ill-fated project. I, I was sold on the idea that I would have unlimited access to the World Bank's internal archives uh, to be able to do a critical review of their staff. Um, and in the end, it turned out to be a whitewash. Uh, and the, 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 the uh, publication that came out of it was appalling. It's called The Voices of the Poor, Can Anyone Hear Us? And it's basically a sort of a, attempt by the World Bank to make uh, everyone believe that some of their best friends are poor. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an abject waste of time. Um, but, yeah, I, I, work, I work for them. I uh, interned at the World Trade Organization just to find out what that was like. Um, and I, I was a consultant for the United Nations, which is, you know, in... in, in Several key respects, an institution worthy of support. 
So, so yeah, so protesting the World Trade Organization in, in the World Bank, and you, you have uh, an inside view of how some things actually work there, which a lot of people don't have. Sure, and, uh, but the, the, the thing is, I mean, yeah, the, 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 there's no sort of um, cackling evil bloke, you know, sort of bald-headed <laughs> stroking a cat in a leather chair. The, 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 it, it's actually a sort of technocracy um, where... There's lots of lots of sort of experts who get together and make bad decisions, um, and can, you know sort of amply confirm each other in the in, in the, the error of their ways, um, and and that that sort of technocratic hum of expertise uh, is something that characterizes both of these institutions. Um, so yeah, no, it's it, 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 it's it's not as nasty on the inside as the policies that result from you know, that come out of the end of it. Right, so many of the people that work there actually have very good intentions and think they are doing things that are going to uh, result in a, in a better world, but there's just a, a the way the organization is just structured that can't really happen. Right, exactly. And in fact, the, the way the organization is structured is profoundly anti-democratic. Um, and the, you know, because there's no accountability of the people who make these decisions to the people who have to live with the consequences. And in fact, I mean, the, the, they are responsible in large part for the fact that we've got food riots right now. Um, so, I mean, let's let, let think about food riots because it, 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 it's a really revealing lens into what's wrong with sort of international development at the moment. Um, because every food riot that has happened throughout history has been a, a riot not only for food but all, also for democracy. So, for example, in the United States, uh, one of the, the uh, series of the most successful food riots in, uh, in, in world history happened here in the U.S. in 1917. Um, after the uh, end of the, the First World War, there was a price spike, and uh, uh, women in particular found it difficult to put food on the table for their families. Um, but at the same time, uh, in 1917, women couldn't vote. They couldn't express their outrage or their demand by any other way than taking to the streets. Uh, and in fact, the, the protests in 1917 were demands for food and also for the vote. And so by 1920, uh, the women had, had, had won the, the 19th Amendment. They were allowed to vote in the United States. Um, and that th there was more equitable distribution of food. Now, uh, if we sort of fast forward to today, uh, countries that have been adopting World Bank policies are the ones that, that have been quite heavily um, been uh, the, the ones where riots have been happening. Um, now, these riots, if you, if you listen to what people are saying on the streets, I mean, take Haiti, for example, where eight people so far have died in food riots. Well, what they're saying is, first, yes, we want food. In Haiti, they're saying, yes, we want rice. Um, but they're also saying, and we want the restitution of a democratically elected government. We want Jean-Bertrand Aristide back. Mm -hmm. um, now, and, I mean, that, you know, that's a call for democracy that the organizations like the World Trade Organization and the World Bank can never provide because they're not they're not democratic in, in in the least bit it so many times the situation is where the people need more democracy that's what they need and everything can flow out of that but oftentimes the impetus to really do anything about it doesn't come until there's things like starvation going on is that well, no, no, I mean, there have been sort of long struggles for, for democracy in a range of countries, struggles that are still ongoing. But the, the trouble with the World Bank is this, that, that when the World Bank makes a loan, it has these conditions attached to it. Now, the, the, these conditions mean that uh, governments have to liberalize their economies. That means that they have to um, stop supporting farmers, reduce the amount of social spending for the hungriest people, um, and, and you know, stop protecting an economy. Uh, and make that economy compete on the world market. Um, now, a, a government has two choices. Either it takes the World Bank loan, or it doesn't. If it doesn't, it goes bankrupt. Uh, but if it does take the World Bank loan, then it has to implement these very unpopular policies. Uh, and the only way that it can implement these unpopular policies is if it refuses to listen to the outcry that, it, that, that those policies generate. In other words, modern development policies have a, a built-in anti-democratic bias because it is expert-driven rather than people-driven. Right. This is what uh, Naomi Klein calls the shock doctrine, and that these unpopular anti-democratic policies only go into place when there is a crisis, when people are forced to take them. Right, but, but, but of course, you know, uh, the, the length of a crisis can vary. I mean, you know, basically, through the 1980s and 1990s, wherever the bank went, uh, in fact, even, even until today, uh, the bank has been imposing these policies. 
uh, certainly they're given a good kick along by a crisis. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it, it's been business as usual in terms of implementing these policies for the past 30 years. So, I mean, Naomi's absolutely right that, that there are moments where, um, you know, where, where disasters offer a, a greater opportunity to implement these. But even without a disaster, things are pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine, Robert Larson speaking with Raj Patel, and we're talking about his book, Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. Uh, so, yes, the, the question implied in your title, how is it that record levels of starvation and obesity are occurring simultaneously? Well, it has everything to do with, with, with this sort of imposition of markets. And, and, and um, th- actually, this is a great time to bring that up because he, he, here's, here's a very concrete example of how the, the transformation of the way that we get food into receiving it via markets means um, two things. Firstly, um, if you can't afford to eat, then you go hungry. And that's, that's what's happening to the 850 million people, and, and certainly that number's higher now, um, who go hungry every year. Uh, and, but, but there's a, another corollary, which is if you can afford food, the market would like for you to buy as much of it as you can um, because, in fact, it's, it's, it's the corporations that operate in that market who, serve, who, who are in the business of, of generating profit through food. So what's profitable? Well, fresh fruits and vegetables, the kinds of foods that are good for you, they're not so profitable as um, highly processed uh, and you know, sort of highly refined kinds of food that are rich in salt and fat and sugar, the kinds of things our bodies crave, mm-hmm. um, but which are entirely profitable, but are not necessarily the best things for us. Right, and so you, you make this great point in your book that the you talk about the whole development of supermarkets, what, what supermarkets are and why they exist, and we, we think we have all of these great choices in, in, in that supermarkets are about providing us with what we want, but it's really more about uh, creating wants in us. Absolutely. I, I mean, the, the, it, it, I mean it, it, it appalled me to discover just how many ways we are manipulated the minute we step into a supermarket. I mean, you're, you're, you're right, Robert. I mean, the, the idea is that we go into a supermarket and we think, oh, we've got just, we can choose from anything in the whole world in the supermarket. Um, but actually, we are being manipulated. Our, our choice is the, you know, the very, very far from free. I mean, everything about a supermarket is manipulated. The, the smell in the air, for example. The reason that there's uh, bakeries in uh, modern supermarkets is not because the bakeries are terribly profitable, but because um, the smell of baking bread makes us buy more things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, everything from the, you know, the, the, the layout of the store. Why, why is the milk always at the back? Um, well, I mean, in every supermarket, whether it's your, your super progressive hippie one or just an industrial kind of um, pilot high, sell it cheap store, the milk is always at the back because it's the single item that we are most often in there to buy. And there's sort of golden triangle between the entrance and the milk and the checkout where, where corporations bid to have their products facing us at eye level along that sort of route uh, or facing our children at cart level if they want to market to our kids. Um, and and that, 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 that is absolutely the opposite of free choice. It, 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 it's um, subliminal, subconscious manipulation. Um, and and the, the, the irony is that Despite all that manipulation, we still feel like we're choosing freely, and, and that, that's where the, you know, the sort of modern industrial capitalism has us. I think that, that, that's where it wins, because we do believe that we choose freely, and really we don't. Yeah, and I always feel a little weirded out when you, they have that one aisle in the supermarket that uh, it's the entire aisle is, is uh, soft drink, soda pop, all of these things that are made with, with corn syrup. And it's just so many brands, and I remember as as a child seeing nothing like that. It was not even half as many as those, but it's all, and it's not really choice, though. It's all just this corn syrup-based, artificially sweetened, art, you know, or just artificially flavored junk. Well, yeah, and, and, and now here's the thing. I mean, it, 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 it's powerful not only just to, to observe that, but to observe that actually... Um, the, when we choose soft drinks, we, we, the, the way that we, we're choosing between you know, various brands of basically the same kind of high fructose corn syrup plus um, carbonated water plus you know, a, a couple of flavorings, um, that's, you know, that, 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 that's a really ample metaphor for the kind of politics that we have around our food at the moment, and politics we have in general. Um, I mean, <laughs> one of the points in Stuffed and Starved that I'm keen to make is 
But we, we shouldn't feel paralyzed uh, by the, the fact that so much of our food is, you know, involves exploitation and manipulation. Um, but we should get angry about it. And, and that means stepping outside supermarkets um, and getting involved in proper democracy. And, and sadly, the kind of democracy that most of us have been used to is the kind of democracy you see in the soda aisles, the choice between Coke or Pepsi. Or, 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 or recently, I mean, this is, this is something that blew me away when I saw it. There's a new sort of Mountain Dew thing where you, uh, Mountain Dew is going to release a new flavor of Mountain Dew sometime in November. Um, and you, the consumer, get to choose between three different kinds of Mountain Dew. You know, the, the um, Mountain Dew Voltage or Supernova or Revolution. And, and of course, you know, the, the, uh, I mean, any, any similarity between this and the presidential campaign, of course, entirely coincidental. And, until you realize that the process they have for this is democracy. Um, it's, it's, you know, Mountain Dew's version of, of, of democracy. And, and in fact, uh, for most of us, that's the, that's the only kind of democracy we've ever seen. Yeah, you get a, a choice uh, between three uh, terrible choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, so that, that's very clear now, you know, why, why we have this uh, uh, epidemic of uh, obesity, uh, all of this, this stuff that is not good for us, that it, we're being sort of forced to choose between at the supermarket, stuff that's go going to make us obese if we... In, indulge in too much of it and not going to really give us the nutrition we need so now now the other end of it the starvation that's going on it, you make the point it's it's not so much that people that the food is not available is that in many of these places people just do not have any means to purchase the food that's right i, I mean if, if you if you want the sort of the clearest demonstration of that think about the united states in, in 2006, 35.5 million people in the United States went hungry at some point during the year. Uh, that figure is surely much higher now after the credit crisis, after you know, the food price es escalation, the price of gas going through the roof. Um, and, 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 of course, the United States has more food than it knows, you know, than it knows what to do with. The problem here is not uh, that, that there is an insufficient quantity of food or calories or nutrition even in the United States. The problem is that there is... A, a severe and deepening inequality between the haves and the have-nots. And, of course, because we distribute market, uh, food through markets, if you have not money, you have not food. It, and so, yeah, you're just using the example there in the United States, but then when you go somewhere like Africa, it, where people, they don't even have the option of things like we have food stamps here, and then you see the real starvation. Right. And, and, and again, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not like there weren't social programs to support uh, the feeding of uh, a society's poorest people. Those have been actively targeted by the World Bank as being disincentives to work and uh, you know, a drain on the public person, inefficient in various ways. Um, I mean, and it's important to, to sort of bear in mind that a lot of the, the tragedy that we see in developing countries has its origin in um, you know, the, the imposition of markets uh, and the imposition of certain ways of, of procuring food. In fact, the uh, UC Irvine professor, uh, Mike Davis, has written a wonderful book called Late Victorian Holocaust that, that covers a lot of this, that, that actually says that the reason that uh, many countries in the developing world are so poor is because they were forced by colonial powers to, uh, to, to sell their food on an open market. And the, the market was a way of siphoning out wealth uh, and food from countries that, that, that had a lot of it to a country that had a lot of power and a lot of money. And this is still going on today, and, and it's more like uh, maybe not so much we would think of as a colonial power, but just uh, multinational corporations, right? Well, th that, but also, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's the U.S. government and the European government and the Canadian government. Uh, I mean, it, it's a range of governments that are actively promoting this. It's, it's, not, it's not, you know, it doesn't happen by accident, uh, and it's not like multinational corporations um, are the, the people we vote for. Uh, I mean, it, multinational corporations have got their hands in our government, um, wh you know, wherever that government is. Uh, and it is those governments that, that are acting on, on behalf of the elites rather than on behalf of the people who are uh, you know, most, uh, most needy. Can you give us a, a specific example of a specific country and uh, where people were able to feed themselves and then they came in with this type of situation where it, uh, they were forced to grow only one kind of crop sure. or the people um, lost, I mean, yeah. Let's, let's think, of, think, think of Haiti. Um, as I say, it's a, it's a place where 
eight people uh, so far have, have died in food riots. Um, now, in the 1980s, Haiti grew the majority of its own rice. Um, but uh, because of uh, various kinds of uh, U.S. intervention, including a coup, um, the, the democratically elected president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, was deposed. Uh, and when Bill Clinton uh, offered to, to have uh, Aristide uh, you know, restored to power, one of the conditions was that Aristide adopt uh, an international monetary fund loan with its conditions. And those conditions included liberalizing the rice economy. Um, now, Aristide was, was democratically elected and, and, and felt a duty to return to his people, which is, which is the right thing to do. Um, but sadly, uh, because he, he had his hands tied behind his back uh, in terms of fiscal policy, you know, it, 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 there was very little he could do. But it, it, and, and one of the, the things about liberalizing the rice economy was that Haitian rice farmers, again, some of the poorest people in the hemisphere, um, were forced to, to compete against U.S rice farmers who, who receive uh, upward of a billion dollars a year in subsidy. So, you, I mean, you know, the, the, this was the level playing field that, that Haiti was told it must compete on. And, of course, it could. You know, the, the, no Haitian rice farmer can compete with a billion dollars a year subsidy. Um, and so, you know, the, the domestic rice production was wiped out. And so now Haiti grows zero uh, tons of its own rice. Um, and in, instead, the, the, the packets of rice that the people are fighting over uh, are packets that, that have an American flag on them and the words, gift of the people of the United States. Yeah, that, that is very tragic. It, and it's funny that, it's not funny, it, it's, uh, it's horrible actually, that many of the people in the United States, policymakers and whatnot, who claim to believe in free markets and free enterprise, uh, are very much for all of these subsidies, which that's, that's not free enterprise, free markets, that's government intervention. And so, you know, I'm always sort of shocked when they talk about these things as free trade and free markets, and it's never free. It, no, it, no, and, and the, the, there is that profound contradiction. I mean, yeah, the, the, the farm bill that was, was recently passed, um, in fact, it was so bad they had to try twice to pass it, um, and uh, it's, it's recently um, sort of gone through, and it basically maintains these subsidies to huge agribusinesses, and vast farms, uh, mega farms, if you like, um, while, you know, small, sustainable family farms in the United States get very, very little of that support. Um, and, and at the same time, yes, there is this sort of idea that free enterprise is going to pull everyone up by their bootstraps. Uh, and in fact, in, in Stuff and Start, I quote um, uh, uh, the head of one of the big agribusiness companies that's a, benef a beneficiary of, this, of government support. Um, the company is called Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, and the, the, the guy I quote is a man called Dwayne Andreas, who, who when he said this in an interview with Mother Jones magazine, he was the CEO of that company. Um, and he said, he said this. He said, the competitor is our friend and the customer is our enemy. There isn't one grain of anything in the world that is sold in a free market. Not one. The only place that you see a free market is in the speeches of politicians. And uh, people who are not from the Midwest do not realize that this is a socialist country. Now, that's a very weird thing for, a, you know, for, for the head of one of the largest multinational food co corporations to say. Um, but, I, I mean, I guess it's a measure of how sort of uh, uh, untouchable he feels, that he can sort of lay it out like it is, and, and it is rather like how he says it is, um, but without, you know, without fear of, of impunity or, or you know, without, sorry, without fear of any kind of blowback uh, for him, because actually, he, you know, he's right. There, there is... Um, you know, the free market exists only for the people who are driven out of production uh, and for the, the, those who are able to sort of hang on uh, and, and suck at the teat of government subsidy. Uh, I think things are going very well. Yeah, I think most of the time when they say uh, free uh, market and free trade, uh, what they mean is uh, how can we make the cost of labor as close to free as possible? And, uh, you know, in other words, uh, slave labor, that, exactly that, that's right. what they want to be free. But, yeah, so you, you very nicely point out there that there, there's at the highest, you know, levels of these megalithic uh, 
or monolithic corporations that there's this collusion and they're not really competing against each other and they pay millions to the federal government to get back billions in in subsidies and in a lot of these uh, sort of right-wing conservatives are always screaming about the you know government handouts and uh, you know the uh, nanny state. Well, we act, but they completely ignore that. That's going to, for the most part, to these people who don't need the money. <laughs> right, and, and I mean, yeah, the the the, the Coke or Pepsi moment um, was kind of amply demonstrated by this farm bill, where um, you know it, it was the Democrats who were pushing it through, and uh, the this president uh, who vetoed it, saying, uh, you know, in, in the full knowledge that it would still go through anyway but saying uh, that, that he was tired, of, sorry, that he didn't want to sign a bill that was about writing checks to millionaires, which I thought was, was, was very amusing because, of course, that's what he's been doing for the past eight years. Um, yeah, or billionaires. Uh. <laughs> Them too, yeah. Uh, uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here with Raj Patel, and we're talking about his book, Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. And, uh, Raj, one of the things in your book that was most... Um, distressing was your reporting of the epidemic of uh, farmer suicides and uh, what causes that could you talk about that a bit sure i mean the, the, the yeah i mean it, it, it was it was tremendously distressing to to go i mean i i interviewed families around the world um where where farmers had despaired uh, and um i mean the, 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 what, what was striking is that actually the sort of basic story is much the same uh, in India, for example, I, I met with a, a family, uh, a guy, let's call him Kistaya, who, um, you know, he, he had a, an acre or so and a, a wife and two kids, uh, and he wanted to leave his land in a better state than he found it, and he wanted it to be productive for his two kids to, to take over. So he invested in um, a, a borehole, in drilling a hole to, to get some water so he could irrigate his land. He borrowed money from the local money lender, and he drilled the hole, and it was dry. So, so then he was in trouble because he needed not only to, to increase the land for his kids, but also pay back the money lender. So he borrowed more money, drilled another hole, and it was dry. And he did this three more times. Um, and, and the rains refused to come. And, and one night he despaired. And uh, after his wife and kids had gone to bed, he uh, pulled down a, a packet of pesticide, a pesticide called Forate, which is illegal here but, but sold by U.S. companies overseas. Um, and he mixed it with water, and he, he drank it. And, and it would have been an agonizing death. He, he, would, he would have been paralyzed and asphyxiated. Uh, and yet he, he can't have convulsed very hard because he died without waking his wife and two kids. Now, that story, you know, I mean, he, he died because he, he didn't want to be the first person in his family in, in, you know, in generations to, to, to be responsible for losing his land uh, to, to the moneylender. And, of course, the, the amount that he, he borrowed was, was 15,000 rupees, or you know, 350 U.S. dollars. But uh, I mean, th that story in India is one of tens of thousands of, of stories of farmer suicide every year in India. But it's not just in India where it's happening. Um, in Australia recently, for example, uh, farmers who've been borrowing and borrowing just to be able to keep their, you know, their lips above water um, have been knocked out by the drought. And again, they face the prospect of losing land that's been in their family for generations. And, and there's been farmer suicides in, in Australia. In, in the United Kingdom, foot and mouth disease has been you know, the shock that has pushed farmers over the edge. Uh, and and you know, around the world, it just takes, you know, if you're heavily in debt, it just takes one thing for you to despair. Um, you know, one shock, whether it's a, you know, an unexpected medical expense or you know, a, a wedding or anything. Um, and you know, th th there comes a time where you, you, you face a ruin of uh, sort of crisis of ruin and a crisis of existence as well. Um, and, and of course, the, the, the deepest tragedy of course, is that these farmer suicides aren't sort of exotic foreign things. They started in the United States um, in the in the mid 1980s in the farm crisis, uh, basically in the Midwest. Um, and that you know, we, we, it's shocking that there are still no no sort of final toll of figures. Uh, related to the farm crisis. But th again, the sort of process was much the same of small, sustainable family farmers becoming deeply in debt and all of a sudden finding their backs against the wall and, and they despair. So it's a global story, but it's one that started here. And if we could succinctly put the cause uh, of this uh, out there, it has to do with these 
policies that, uh, promulgated by the WTO, the World Bank, uh, the governments of the United States and others in, the, w- in collusion with uh, corporate entities and creating this type of uh, uh, agricultural system we have. Right. I mean, yeah, the, I, mean, the, 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 I mean, the common denominator in farmer suicides initially is debt. Um, but, but again, what, why do farmers get in debt? Um, because they're forced to buy, you know, I mean, they, they um, are told that the best way to farm is by buying fertilizers and pesticides from these big corporations. So they borrow money in order to be able to get that. But, of course, um, once, you, once you start buying fertilizer and pesticides, you, you, you compromise the soil fertility and the, the, you know, the, the, the local ecology. So you start needing to buy more and more fertilizer and pesticides just to get the same amount out of your land. Uh, and that, you know, that so-called green revolution model was was politically enforced and and uh, politically sort of dropped from uh, from above by uh, the U.S. and European governments uh, and and a few private foundations here as well, the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and and it's not going anywhere. Sadly, I mean, you know, right now the Gates Foundation is about to do the same thing with its new green revolution for Africa. I mean, you you were mentioning. Uh, Naomi Klein's um, you know, the, the idea of the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. Well, th- this current food crisis is also an opportunity for uh, unscrupulous corporations and, and, and interests to be able to further their their you know, their agenda. Uh, and so, from the Gates Foundation, you've got this big push for biotechnology. Um, one of the senior uh, guys at the Gates Foundation used to be a, a senior vice president at Monsanto. And so, it's no accident now that the, the solutions that we're seeing from these philanthropic organisations really quite re- reflect quite deeply deeply the preoccupations of the private sector yeah it, you uh in your book you, you make the point through through people you talk to and in, in interview about that the ones protesting the the way the situation is these people are not necessarily luddites but there there is there is the fact that many of these people were able to feed themselves and take care of their communities quite well using certain types of, of uh, agricultural uh, techniques that, that have been fairly consistent for hundreds of years, if not thousands. And so they come along with these new things that sometimes new technology, new developments, inventions yeah, are, are better, but n- not always. And often when there's a profit motive involved, it, it's a... Uh, uh, the science that that is promoting it is, is flawed and murky, and uh, this makes me think about something you reported in the book. Uh, uh, the, the, I got to talk about this, Ignacio Chapella. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we like to think of you know the the academy as a place where pure science can be practiced, free from corporate pressure to produce certain results. But your account of what happened to Ignacio Chapello demonstrates quite otherwise. Could, could you share that with us? Sure, yeah. I mean, Ignacio and one of his graduate students, um, a man called David Quist, found uh, that in Mexico there was um, evidence that, that uh, um, native varieties of, of maize, of corn, had been contaminated by genetically modified corn. Uh, and so they reported this um, in a journal. I'm, I'm, I think it was Nature. It might have been Science, but I think it was Nature. Um, and uh, then, uh, basically, they came under a storm of uh, protest uh, from the biotech lobby, essentially, um, that first you know, re- forced a retraction from, from this, this scientific journal, the first in its history. Um, it, you know, it's utterly subverting the scientific process of peer review. Uh, but then also that there was a, a, a smear campaign driven by the PR and uh, the PR arms of um, Monsanto in particular um, to have uh, Ignacio kicked out. Uh, he was denied tenure, which he, he only got uh, after appealing uh, the, the decision at UC Berkeley um, and through some, some, some serious social activism. Um, but, but, I mean, the, uh, Ignacio's story is uh, just one of, of, of many stories of what happens when people want to ask critical questions about um, the money behind the technology and want to ask not, you know, would it be cool if we altered the gene in this particular plant, but what would happen if we did? What, what are the ecosystemic effects of this kind of, um, of, this kind of research? And, and, you know, the, 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 there's no profit in, in asking these sort of big questions about, well, so what are the impacts? The profit is to be made in, you know, patenting something quickly and getting it out of the door with, with a minimum amount of, uh, of testing.
Um, and, and sadly, Ignacio's uh, situation is one that's emblematic of the way that the academy is being privatized. Yeah, it's more and more heading in that direction. He was uh, eventually vindicated, and but he had to go through quite a, a trial and uh, for daring to put the notion out there that genetically modified foods are dangerous and that they can infect uh, crops that are, are not such and uh, that, that that's something that needs to be looked at. You know, he was just actually basically reporting data. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, that, and we see that happening more and more in, in the academy. And, and you, you found out that the, the UC uh, system was very reluctant to disclose their relationship with these uh, corporate entities. Indeed, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, uh, you began your show with, with the, the disclaimer that this doesn't, affect, <laughs> doesn't reflect the, the views of the regions. I'm sure the regions would disagree with both of us here. Um, but, um, the, I mean, it, it, it's certainly the case that um, the, the regions have been very reluctant to, to, to have any kind of transparency and any kind of honesty in, in the um, academic process uh, around, you know, sort of uh, prob- financial probity. It's being sold as a sort of right-wing freedom to research idea that people should be free to do whatever they like. Um, but uh, you know what, what that freedom is is basically freedom to sell you, sell the university to the highest bidder. Right, and there's this issue that many people don't understand of like what gets studied and what doesn't get studied, and, and that alone can have huge impact. And certain things that are very promising as technologies, if there are never any studies funded on them, well, we never know how good it could possibly be. And uh, so, so that, that's a real problem that we see in the, the academy these days. Uh, since we're talking about genetically modified organisms, uh, somebody recently sent me a... Uh, Monsanto parody called uh, Monsatan. <laughs> yeah, I chuckled, but but really, it's hard for me to not view them and others involved in in pushing genetically modified crops as somewhat evil. Uh, can can you share some of you know your findings in regard to genetically modified foods and in how that is actually playing out in the real well, world? I mean, it, I mean, it's important to remember that that. Um, the, the, the two major uh, GM technologies that are on the market today are, um, are all about pesticides because the, the GM companies are pesticide companies. These, these genetically modified com- uh, uh, seed companies are in the business of selling um, you know, herbicides and pesticides. So the, the two kinds of genetically modified crops that are widely available are either Roundup Ready, which means that, that, you, know, that you, you plant your crop and then you buy this, uh, this broad-spectrum herbicide called Roundup, and you use that to nuke every other sort of green thing in the area so that you, you don't, you know, you, you kill weeds and everything else, and all that you're left with is your Roundup-tolerant plant. Or something called um, a BT uh, plant, which exudes um, small levels of, of a certain kind of, of uh, pesticide from within its leaves. Um, but but it, it, it's interesting to me that, that, that actually the, that the most uh, aggressive uh, lines of research have been not around, you know, uh, d- d- developing... Um, you know, new and exciting kinds of um, trait, uh, but around intellectual property right protection. Uh, these, these are called genetic use restriction technologies, and basically that they're like copy, you know, copy protection from your from your Microsoft thing. Um, where, you know, the, the, what Monsanto Monsanto is going to make profit from is if you buy seeds from them every year. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, the, 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 there's a widely known uh, kind of technology called Terminator technology, which um, you know, you plant the seed, and then the next generation of seed that's produced is sterile, um, which uh, there's a moratorium on at the moment, but it's still under review. But, but the, uh, yeah, the, Monsanto has come up with a couple of other technologies, one called, uh, instead of Terminator, zombie seeds, which, um, <laughs> uh, w- w- in which the seeds are dead until you spray them with something that you buy from Monsanto. Um, and, and then, and then uh, I, I had a, 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 my, uh, my own version of deep throat uh, within the Monsanto labs, who was telling me that they were experimenting with another kind of technology, <clears throat> which involved changing, the, you know, adding a particular kind of refractive property to, to, to leaves. Now, you know, this did nothing necessarily for the for, for the plant at all, um, but the purpose of adding this this mutation into the into the leaves was that then you could, from space, using a satellite, figure out, you know, Monsanto could could see where its plants were being grown 
because it would reflect light in a particular way, and then they, they would send the bill. Yeah, and so you could just be uh, inadvertently growing their crops. Uh, uh, somehow it, it got into your field, a, a bird dropped a seed or something like that, and then you're going to owe them uh, a royalty. Right, yeah, because you, then you become a criminal because you are, you know, you're using their intellectual property without, without licensing it from them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, I mean, it, it, and that's that's precisely what 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 they're about. I mean, they're, 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 this is the source of profit for them. Yeah, and they the one of the genetically modified crop ideas they have is that these uh, plants that you, they you use so much pesticide to grow these things that they, they most plants couldn't survive. But they, if you get the genetically modified version, it is able to withstand this high dosage of pesticide use or herbicide use that's right yeah that's yeah. So, that, so that's roundup ready crops yeah okay yeah so it, I, all of this it just it, it really does sound rather diabolical to me and i you know as a young person read a lot of science fiction and these were the kind of things you read about that in the future there would be these entities that that had so much power and in, in these dystopias and that everybody owed them tribute for what they you you couldn't exist without taking uh what they had to sell, and uh, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it seems like those those weird uh, dark science fiction stories are coming true with uh, organizations or uh, corporations such as Monsanto. And uh, now, what I really like about your book is that you know, we're we're speaking about a lot of depressing things here, but you also it's it's also a very hopeful book, and you talk about what some of the people are doing to fight back, and uh, some of these. I, I think the one that was most impressive to me was uh in uh brazil the uh what was the name of the organization the mst yeah tell us about them well uh, they're the, 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 the brazilian landless rural workers movement and um they've been going for about 30 years and they uh, through their history they've resettled over a million people um and what, what they do is uh organize and get families you know about 100 families usually into um, groups that, that then form encampments. I mean, these are families who are recruited from the poorest rural places and also from the cities, from the, uh, the shanty towns there. Um, and they, the MST will organize th those families so that, uh, that they'll learn to live together, work together, and then at some point they will occupy land. Um, you know, they'll wait for, for a day when there's a big football match and the police are watching television. Uh, and they'll, they'll charge, they'll take over the land and they'll install themselves and start building communities. I mean, you know, they'll have to fight off the uh, the hired guns from the local land landowners, and of course the, the, the violence of the police. Um, but they'll they'll stand strong, and and, and what, what you've seen in those communities is the most amazing kind of transformation. Not not only in terms of the 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 the, the wonderful kinds of rich, very sophisticated agroecological science that they're developing, um, and incidentally, I mean, you know, the, the the real the, the amazing kinds of science. Um, that, that I've seen have been about using the sort of lessons of the past, but using them in really exciting ways to, to, to create this rich agroecological, dynamic um, biological system um, that is embedded within a broader social system that, that supports not only sort of healthy soils and you know, a high yield, um, but also a vibrant community and one in which, you know, I mean, in which I, I saw the most amazing things. I mean, there, there was, there's a story about the a guy who, because the MST is geared towards fighting sexism as well as other things, um, men go through a certain kinds of discussion about, you know, how they profit from, from male privilege. Um, and I mean, this might, might not sound like much fun uh, to go through if you're a bloke, um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, I mean, actually the men who come out of it feel kind of liberated. I mean, and, um, yeah, I, mean I, I, I have, uh, and obviously, it's, and it's not really about the men, it's about the women, and it's about... It's, it's about uh, you know, uh, men rescinding their their their, their privilege, uh, and about women fighting back, and and and, and you know, the, 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 there is this kind of space that happens um, within you know the poorest people on earth in in, in Brazil, um, and you, you have men coming out going, yeah, well, you know, I guess I'm still a bit sexist now, but I'm less than I used to be, and I try and fight it every day, <laughs> and and actually, you know, they mean it, yeah, uh, and and that they they know that they're better people because of it, um, and and I think that that's you know that kind of amazing engagement around transforming not only how you grow food, but how you grow people, how you develop people, how you cultivate people, um, is, is tremendously important. I, 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 was, I was very honored to be able to spend time with um, people on, on those settlements.
And so we we would look at people like that as like they seem like they have nothing, they have no land, and yet they've taken their situation and created this this wonderful thing we all can be inspired from. And are it's like they're squatting on land and just growing stuff on land that is not otherwise being used. Is that well? Yeah, except I mean I, I think squatting has the, the wrong sort of connotation about it. I mean it, it, it's really about reclaiming mm-hmm. um, because. Uh, and, and this is one of the sort of uh, interesting sort of bits of trivia about uh, Brazil. It's based on the Napoleonic Code. Property rights are based on the Napoleonic Code. Now, what, what, what that means is that the only reason that a society allows private property is because the, uh, uh, there's an understanding that by enclosing this property, people will use it more efficiently than if it were um, made available to, to everyone. Um, but the moment you stop using it more efficiently is the moment you, you lose your rights to that property. Uh, and so uh, what uh, the MST have done is, uh, is identify land that is being underutilized or just being sat on for, for speculative reasons. And they go for that land, um, which is, you know, and they bring that land back into production and they, they, they use it to actually develop um, th- these communities where the outcomes in terms of development, in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of life expectancy, a range of things are much, much higher than the government's own sort of development programs. Uh, and that's because people are in the in these settlements uh, at least a little more in charge of their lives than most of us are. And this kind of, kind of brings back the notion of the commons. Mm-hmm. Is that would be the correct uh, term? You know that this is land that is just uh, it's everybody's land. Well, I mean, it, it, it certainly brings back the idea that that, um, that that private property can't. You know, I mean, particularly the sort of speculative reasons for private property are um, very very unsound. Um, but it's not, it's not actually straightforwardly an idea of uh, creating a broad commons. I mean, there, there's still a sense within certain MST settlements, and certainly the ones I saw, that while farming together and collectively was important, it was also important to have your own space, and everyone's got their own house and their own, their own, their own land uh, around, around the houses, though the, the fields might be managed collectively. Right. So people should uh, have their own space, but there also should be certain land that we can all say is the commons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of like we have the airwaves we're speaking over right now is supposed to be the commons. Right. And, yeah. so, um, and you also talk about th- that these kinds of things, similar types of things happening in places here like the United States, in, in urban settings where people are uh, in Los Angeles. I can't remember the name of that. Uh, yeah, the, the South Central Farm. Yeah, and uh, that that was an amazing uh, bit of uh, uh, of history there, and, and people just took the land that was being underutilized and were growing well, yeah, crops. No, I mean, it was basically in, in, in the wake of the the, the uprisings in, in Los Angeles in the was it nineteen nineties. Um, the, uh, the, the there was a, a sort of disused land that was used for a community garden, um, and for, for for over a decade it was taken care of, and but by a range of sort of immigrants uh, and local people, and just it was an amazing social space. Um, and then it was recently sold by the uh, the, uh, the municipality to, to to a developer who bulldozed it, um, and it was it was absolutely tragic. I mean, and it was interesting just that you know, in in the last few days, um, one of the things that happened was that the soil from there was transferred to a few other places because twelve years of building soil fertility, you can't throw that away. I mean, that's gold. Yeah. Um, and so they sent they sent out the soil, they sent out the seeds as a, as a kind of um, a, a, a way of keeping that place alive, but but uh, there are projects that, that are keeping that alive in, in more in more ways than than, than merely taking its soil, uh, and we are seeing more and more of these urban agricultural movements that that are about building communities, not just about growing food, but about building jobs and communities around local agriculture. In uh, Raj Patel, author of Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System, if we could uh, kind of close out on uh, maybe just touching on a little bit about th- the notion of, as consumers, doing this thing where we sort of re-empower ourselves by giving ourselves those choices in, in purchasing locally produced food and actually you know growing our own food and preparing our own food. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, uh, I, I think you know, at the end of the day, we, we, we need not to feel guilty about our food, but to get angry about it, to get angry um, around the way that, that uh, you know, we are manipulated just as uh, people you know, in faraway countries are, are, are manipulated. Um, 
But uh, I, I think you know the, the, the things that we can do. Certainly, we can shop a little smarter um, and you know uh, buy fair trade and what have you. Um, but but we, we ought to ought to not not to delude ourselves into thinking that we can just simply create a better world by shopping. Um, we do need to get involved in politics, and we do need to get involved in organizing around um, creating this kind of better food system. So everything from you know the, the food that is served in your kids' schools to uh, the food that is. Um, you know, where your local government buys the food to you know, what the federal government is doing to subsidize agribusiness, to what the World Bank is doing. All of these things are things that we can and should take on um, because it, it, that, that, that's a proper and appropriate route for, for uh, people who are angry about the food system. Okay, and they uh, will get angry uh, reading your book. <laughs> that is uh, Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. And there's so much more in the book than we even had a uh, chance to touch on today. It's just packed full of great stories and information and ways for you to get angry and inspired to to do things to create a better world uh, raj patel thanks so much for being with us today it's a great pleasure robert thank you okay bye now bye-bye yes that was raj patel in that book again stuffed and starved the hidden battle for the world food system and that's uh, published by melville house and a really really powerful book in uh next week on uh out the rabbit hole here, providing we are not uh, preempted by a uh, baseball um, playoff uh, broadcast. We're not sure if that's going to happen or not, so we'll know in a couple of days. But if that does not happen, uh, my special guest will be Eric G. Wilson. He's been on the show a couple of times before with other uh, great books he's written, but he's got a new one called Against Happiness. This is a real controversial book, but a a fun book as well. And uh, so that'll be next week, Eric G. Wilson. He is always a great guest, just a really uh, brilliant guy with a very, very provocative, and we'll have fun with that. So the beatdown's coming up in about four minutes here. This is uh, Robert Larson uh, closing out Out the Rabbit Hole, and I'll remind you again that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. It's rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash out the rabbit hole and i'm gonna play that uh that johnny hickman song we had at the beginning of the show the great decline i'm gonna play that now in its entirety so uh and then we'll go right into the beat down kuci 88.9 fm and irvine also on the web at kuci.org robert larson saying <laughs> be talking to you next week